Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we're gathering this summer on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays for one service at 10. Come early for a light breakfast at 9.15. We look forward to connecting with you. And I'm involved with the prayer ministry here at Waterstone. A reading from Ephesians 5:21 through 28. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ, the church, he loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the word, washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Waterstone. I'm excited to uh, preach about marriage today. And a couple of weeks ago, as Larry was talking to me about this message uh, and me preaching on marriage, he said, hey, what if Steffi preached the sermon with you? And I was like, what? We can do that? That's awesome. Um, I got really excited and I was like, man, I would love to have my wife up there with me and talking through this. And uh, then I went home and I was like, hey, Steffi, guess what Larry said? This is going to be awesome. You're going to love this. And I was like, hey, do you want to preach on marriage with me? And she was like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> like, why would I do that? And to be fair, she is a, a PhD student right now. She's on her summer break. And so she was like, I have the summer off. I don't want to study. I don't want to prep. I don't want to have to be doing this. I feel like that's fair. It's totally fair. Um, but I kind of roped you in and we're, we're up here now. So yeah. now that we're here, how are you feeling on stage? And I know you're probably a little embarrassed to be on stage with me. But other than yeah. that, how are we feeling? Never. Um, I'm actually really excited. I feel like um, as we studied this passage, I got excited. But more than that, I feel like many of you might not be um, super aware that I actually provide a lot of what Paul says up here. So now you just get to hear it from me. It's true. <laughs> it's very true. Uh, she's my sounding board for every sermon. She often gives clarity that I'm like, oh, that's really good. And I'm like taking notes. <laughs> and so, yeah, it'll be kind of fun to do this together. Yeah. Um, and as we dive into a sermon on marriage today, we thought a couple weeks ago I preached on parenting and reaching the next generation. I used a clip from Nate Bargatze. Um, he's got a lot of good family content. And so he actually has a great story um, about just kind of the challenges of marriages and, and sometimes how we can get into cycles that, that um, well, well, I'll let him explain it. Yeah. So. She's good at not talking to me. She can go a long time. She could do her whole marriage career. We've, marriage fights are great because they're all very dumb. I would say 90% of them are dumb. 10% the cops show up. But we got in a fight uh, once over chocolate milk. We didn't talk for 24 hours. <laughs> 
What happened is I brought chocolate milk home, and she was like, why did you bring it home? And I was like, you're supposed to drink it after you work out. <laughs> and she was like, that's not true. And I was like, well, there's a commercial on TV. They probably looked into it more than you did. So I decided to listen to them. And she said, that's just the milk people pushing chocolate milk. And I was like, you don't even know what that statement means. You don't know if there's milk people. And I, I think chocolate milk's doing fine. I don't think they're sitting on barrels of it. And they're like, we got to make up a lie. We got to get rid of this chocolate milk. <laughs> she went to college, all right, and I did not. But she did not study chocolate milk. When is it good and not good for you? To be fair to her, though, I do not work out, so, <laughs> you know, but I was probably going to start, and I needed to get all this stuff there. So good, right? Um, Steffi, at the, this is a little vulnerable, but what, what's the dumbest fight that you and I have had? So ours was ice cream, not yeah, chocolate not milk, chocolate but, milk, but ice, cream. ice cream. Yeah, do you want to share a little bit? This was like eight years ago, and the reason I say I'm a little nervous to bring it up is there's still a little bit of heat every time the story <laughs> comes up. Um, so Paul is a diehard fan of Bluebell ice creams. I would like to here? say I'm an ice cream connoisseur, so, but yeah, we got some Bluebell people. Okay, right, yeah. so Paul really loves Bluebell. He feels yep. very strongly about it. I, on the other hand, prefer the Ayers, you know, Briars, Dryers, Tillamook can go in there. Yeah. Any of that soft, fluffy stuff Anyone is more for me. Right? And so... <laughs> no fans of those. Oh, okay. They're out there. Okay. I'm all right. I was so going to say, this is going to go better for me than it did last night. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, do you want to tell them what you said about my ice cream preferences? Yeah. So, we were shopping for ice cream, and, and we were newly married, and we were trying to figure out which ice cream was going to be our household ice cream. Um, and I said, to try to make my point, I said, if they served ice cream in heaven, they would serve Bluebell ice cream. That's not where he stopped. Keep going. And then I followed that statement up with, if they served ice cream in hell, they would serve briars or dryers or Tillamook. Yeah. yeah. She didn't like that very much. I, I, still, I still don't I still like don't. that very much. Yeah, that's fair. I had strong opinions. Yeah, so. yeah it's a pretty dumb fight. Um, and that's just, you know, marriage can be that way. We, we can get into these cycles. We can have fights. But even if you're not married, uh, you might have dumb arguments with friends where you're just like, why? I don't even remember what we were fighting about. But yeah. that yeah. is true for us. Yeah. Also. And so with that being said, we're aware that in our church community, there are people with all different relationships to marriage and relationship status and things like that. We're really mindful about how um, we all are here together and how a, a series like Flourish can actually alienate some of our congregation. At any point, half the people in the room could feel like, well, this doesn't apply to me, so I'm, I'm just going to check out. Exactly. And so we're really mindful of that today. Yeah, because it's the opposite of what the intent of the series is. When we talk about a series like Flourish and Finding Connection, we, we want these messages to be something that connect everyone to one another. Um, and mostly we want people to be encouraged by the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that influences our relationships, whatever our status might be in everyday living. And so that's hopefully what we, we can get across today. Yeah, there's this vision in the New Testament that I think is so beautiful and so full of hope based on the gospel, um, especially in our culture, a culture that uh, there's a lot of loneliness and broken relationships. So this vision for marriage and relationships that's really rooted in the gospel sees all relationships as really a reenactment of Christ's self-sacrificial love. Yeah. 
Yep, and so that's where we're going to today. Um, and some of you, when uh, Millions just so beautifully read scripture, uh, Ephesians 5, uh, sometimes we have some reactions to that. I mean, the first word in it is submit, and some of us don't like that word. Um, and I know you can even like attest to that that's come up in you sometimes. Yeah, I think um, sometimes these passages don't feel beautiful and hope-filled and, you know, like they depict the kind of gospel that we see in Jesus. And so um, we, be, we are familiar with this passage. And for some people, maybe it, it's no problem, right? It feels really good to, to hear these words. And then for some people, we have images of women who have been, um, who are amazing and have been squashed by their husbands or how men in the church has, have used this to kind of enact power over women and over wives in the church in a way that doesn't feel good. And, and this language can sometimes feel archaic or maybe um, ancient or, or tricky or just difficult sometimes. Yeah, difficult to navigate. Yeah. And so if you've spent any amount of time at Waterstone, you know that we try to come to Scripture with a, a particular lens, where as we're diving into Scripture, um, we come with the understanding that Scripture uh, was written for us, but it was not written to us, right? We're, we're reading someone else's mail. Um, I, I made the mistake last night of asking if anybody has ever been to Ephesus before, and like three people raised their hand. I was like, okay, shoot, well, that blows the point. I feel like but, it was more than that. Yeah, it was probably more than that. But um, there were like none of us have ever lived in first century Ephesus at least, right? Like, like we can acknowledge that. So this, this letter was not written in our context with our language, with our understanding in mind. Paul was not trying to, to tell people in, you know, 21st century what relationships are supposed to look like. He was writing to a particular community. And the, the trick is when you come to scripture like that, you have to understand the principle, the kind of the main point that Paul's trying to make for that community and then how that applies to the Christian community today. It's not not always one for one. And so we want to dive in and, and explore a little bit of the context. Um, and as you dive into Ephesians 5.21 and, and after, where Paul's talking about these household codes and telling people to submit and using language like the husband is the head of the household, there's a, a particular context that he has in mind. So if you come skeptical, hang on for just a little bit, because I think as we explain some of that, um, you'll, you'll actually like what Paul's trying to say. And I'm actually going to pass it back to Steffi for context, because one of her biggest critiques of my sermons is that I don't do enough context or I don't explain the passage enough. So I was like, you do it then. <laughs> and so she's got the job of kind of exploring some of the context of Ephesians today. Totally. And I just want to say that a lot of our um, content and things that we kind of took from this passage today came from Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, had some fabulous stuff that we just really used to inform. Yeah, listen to a lot did. of his podcasts, sermons, and commentaries. To, to kind of, It's the first time this passage has really made sense to me, Yeah. Um, which I don't know if that's Tim Mackey or that I was doing it with my wife, but probably that she... Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he's speaking to a group of Jews and non-Jews. So these two groups that were really divided by so many factors that it honestly would have taken an act of God to bring them together, um, which is great. That's what happened. Um, in the first three chapters, Paul spends his time describing the act of God or the ways that God took these really great measures to unify these people that otherwise would be so divided um, and pull them together into one humanity in Jesus. Then in the, the next three chapters, Paul's getting really practical. So he's starting to talk about how this teaching really makes a difference for the people at Ephesus and all of their relationships and how it, it should impact every relationship that they have. Um, so we're going to pick up in the middle of that second section of the book, that practical section, on Paul's teaching and how it impacts all of these aspects of our lives. Um, this is when he says, I'm going to go ahead and read that first um, verse there. He, Paul says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, 
just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul here really is addressing the whole community of believers at the Ephesian church. And he's telling them to imitate Christ's love um, and his self-sacrifice for them. So just from word repetition, if you can take a look, what do we see as the theme here in these verses? It's it's love, right? We see it repeated a few times. And so um, Paul is really trying to pull for these people to understand what Christ's sacrifice means for how they enact love with their community. So because God has loved us, then they're going to love each other and they're called to live a life of love based on how Jesus did that, the picture that Jesus gave of what that looks like. And how did he love us? He, he did that by giving his life for us, so that, the ultimate self-sacrifice, really. Um, so for Paul, love is primarily not a feeling. It's for the, the Apostle Paul. I like the warm fuzzies. <laughs> Romantic. For the Apostle Paul, um, love is not a feeling where like we think of it in our context. It's really an action. And so um, in, in our context, it's more of an emotional word. It's something we feel. But Paul in, in the biblical authors really see love as a commitment to act for the well-being of another person. So really an action and a commitment to to do that. Um, Just like God is committed to the well-being of his creation or Jesus was committed to the body of Christ such that he gave his his whole life for us. Um, And and Paul's basically saying if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're going to join this Jesus community or be part of this Jesus community that's forming, this is what your life is going to look like too for all of us. Absolutely. So this is kind of the, the principle, the command that the rest of Ephesians 5 hangs on. And it's kind of the anchor point that Paul's pulling from, that the community of faith is supposed to live out this ethic um, of love and a commitment to love other people. So then when you jump ahead to 521, and Paul says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Paul's kind of applying that first command of loving one another in, in the way that we're supposed to do that, following Christ's example. And he says that the community of faith, everyone is also supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, when, again, when we say that word submit, some of us have a, a fairly positive reaction. Anyone hear the word submit and you're like, sign me up, that sounds great, love that word? Okay, no, all right. We had like three last night, I was kind of surprised. But um, when you say submit, anyone have just kind of like a negative reaction? Like if someone tells you like, hey, you need to submit to the government, you're like, yeah, that sounds great, I'll do that. Right? Okay, so we have this kind of negative connotation about the word. And for many of us, submit, it, it kind of carries meaning of like passivity or weakness or allowing yourself to be dominated by someone else. Um, it, it's, it's not good. Like it's not something that, that most of us are, are longing for. So when we say, see, Paul say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, we can kind of like, uh, I don't know that I want, what? And what Paul is doing is he, is he is saying that submission, it doesn't have anything to do with all of the kind of connotations that we often have. It's not weakness or passivity or being dominated by someone. Submission for Paul is the flip side of love. If love is a coin, the flip side is submission. And he's saying that the, the definition of submission is similar to love. It's prioritizing another person's well-being above your own. 
So you can see how the definitions kind of interplay and, and interlock together where Paul is really saying that, that for the community of faith, um, he's talking to everyone here, that if you follow Jesus, then there should be a, a, a way of living in community where you are not just looking out for yourself, but always looking for the interests of other people in that community, always looking to love them and prioritizing their needs above your own. Now, where we get tripped up in this some is we start taking that principle and we apply it specifically when Paul is talking to everyone. So when Paul says submit to, to, to everyone out of reverence for Christ, um, are single people included in that command? Yes. All right. Yeah, thank you. I've got some former students over there that are like, they're with me. All right. When he talks to, when he says submit to everyone um, out of reverence for Christ, are, are children a part of that command? Yes. Are, are wives a part of that command? Yes. Our husbands called to submit? Yes. And so every um, social status, every relationship, is, it's all characterized by the self-giving love of prioritizing other people's needs above your own. And that is what is supposed to characterize the community of faith. All of us that are in this room or watching online are called to submit to one another, prioritizing other people's needs in the faith community above our own. That is what it looks like to live out Christ's self-giving love as a community of faith. Yeah. I feel like submit may not be the best word in our language, but it's the word we have. So we wanted to take some time to just all be on the same page about what it actually means. Right. So we can really go from there. And, and that's the principle, I think, that this community of Christ is supposed to be characterized by a love that's so influenced by the gospel and Christ's love for them that it translates into a love that considers and acts on behalf of and prioritizes the well-being of other people and the well-being of the, those around us. Um, and so this is beyond marriage. It applies, you know, to all of the people at Ephesus. It applies to all of us. This is for everybody. Um, but then Paul does something really interesting, and he starts to apply this really specifically to, to particular relationships um, using something that I get super excited about, which is <laughs> Greco-Roman first century household codes. <laughs> I told you, she's a PhD student. So there's a little bit of nerd there, okay, but I love her. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just going to um, drag y'all along with me in my nerdiness this morning, but we're going to talk a little bit about what these household codes are and why they're important and how Paul used them to kind of flip the script on um, what was typical at the time. So these household codes were a really well-known literary um, style that was pretty common, and it basically was a way that people in a household or household members, um, their roles and their actions and their behaviors and the things they needed to do within the family or within the household were described. So that's kind of how they, they functioned. Um, and they were, like I said, they were really common. Even Aristotle talks about them, father of Western thought. We're all pretty familiar, familiar with Aristotle. So we'll just read really quick even what Aristotle says about these household codes. So of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal, over his wife, a constitutional role. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the older and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. 
And when, I think what's fascinating about this is when you read that, you can find other quotes from Aristotle where he literally says that like at a soul level, women are inferior to men. And the reason he says that is he looks at the world and he thinks that that people with souls shouldn't be ruled over by other people. That that doesn't feel right. If if people all have souls, then they should be free to, to, to engage with life how they want. But he looks at his world and he sees that's not how it operates. And so he has to find a way to justify how he sees the world. And so his solution was, well, it just must mean that that males have the most complete soul. And then women have a little bit lesser of a complete soul. And then you go to slaves, and they probably have the least amount of complete soul. And, and children, we, I mean, we've all seen children. Like, they're wild, they're crazy. They, they have, like, souls that will someday be more complete, but they need to be ruled. Right. And so that was his solution. That, like, at a soul level, people are created differently or, or made differently um, and have less value or worth. And Paul sees that and is like, that does not work with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're like, we cannot live that out. And so he starts challenging it in some pretty interesting ways and in really brilliant ways. Yeah, I think we need to um, just understand really quick what that hierarchy is though. So um, this is what was typical in the Roman um, culture, right? So the emperor or the son of God, which is um, they considered the emperor a deity was at the top. Then there were the ruling elite, then the men or the patriarchs, and then we have the women and the children and the slaves. So this is kind of how society functioned. It was very normative. Everyone lived and breathed in this this environment. But what Paul's really saying is that the son of God, Jesus Christ, came and self-sacrificed himself for the lowest of the slaves. So he's really flipping this hierarchy totally upside down. Yeah, the whole gospel um, is centered around this idea that the head of the hierarchy would give of himself self-sacrificially so that children and slaves and women and men can all receive the good news of who Jesus is. And so in this scene, in this worldview, in this paradigm of how like first century Ephesians and Romans saw the world, this movement of Jesus followers shows up on the scene and they say, well, God is committed to the restoration of his broken creation. And he's so committed to that that he sent Jesus, his son, the son of God, to die so that sinners might be saved and creation might begin to be restored. And they begin living out this gospel ethic that Paul calls them to, to to live in such a way that they are walking in the way of love as Christ loved the church. And it begins upsetting the social system. And they begin saying, well, this can't play out the same way. If, If what Christ has done has any implications for how we live together, then this hierarchy begins to change and crumble and disassemble in light of what Jesus has done on the cross. The Christian community is going to live according to a different hierarchy, which is crazy and brilliant that he starts using yeah. this. And then he used household codes <laughs> to like trick people into seeing how, um, how some of this happens. So we'll go ahead and read the first line of um, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. And just take a look at what Paul does here with the wives part of the household code and how that differs from what would be normal or normative at the time. So he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. All right. So Paul's innovation here is that he adopts that typical literary form, but he's going to do some things that really subvert how it would typically have been read. He challenges that assumption and places the foundation of this code not on um, 
you know, the patriarch and the household or, or male superiority, but rather on Christ's self-sacrificial love. Um, so the first way he does this is actually he softens the command to women. This is really interesting, and I want to take a look at what the actual Greek translation of this, um, these verses is. So if we can throw that up really quick. It's the one with 21 and 22. Carly, the yeah. little, yeah, there you okay. go. Okay, so submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that's 521. And then it says, wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. So if you'll notice here, there's actually no verb in that verse about wives, where wives are, where Paul starts talking about wives. This is super radical because at the time in a household code, we would anticipate seeing a lot of the um, expectation and responsibility and behavioral um, like requirements placed on the subordinate party in a household code. And here Paul softens it and actually removes that verb from what he expects of women and puts it under the umbrella of what is expected of everyone, which is really, really, um, you know, different than I think what they would have expected to see at the time. And then he uses a different, he references a different word. So it would be very typical for women to be expected to obey their husbands at this time in, in the culture. And Paul doesn't use that word. We know this is important because later on in the text, he uses obey. So he certainly could have used it here if he wanted to, and he doesn't. He chooses to keep this word submit, which has this very different meaning for wives here, which is fascinating. And then later, we see that there's just a, a difference in the sheer volume of how women are expected to be in relationships compared to their husbands. So um, if we look for a second, there are about three to four verses that are spoken to wives compared to about, um, I don't know, like nine or ten or something like that to the men. This is, this is very different than what a normal household code would be. So normally we'd see that flipped. Like I said, the subordinate party is the one that bears the responsibility in terms of what's expected, what they have to do, things like that. Here, Paul totally shifts it. Wives have very little um, comparatively to men, and then the, the husbands have the bulk of what is expected of them. Yeah, so he really begins flipping this hierarchy and this narrative uh, on its head, again, to try to convey to everyone that the way that we love one another is as Christ has loved the church, and that begins to play out in marriage, that he sees marriage as a reenactment of that gospel story. And so uh, when people come to this passage, they, there's often a lot of questions um, about what it means then when it says that, that husbands are the head of their wives. And when we hear the word head or headship, we, we have a certain understanding that, you know, if you're the head of the household or you're the head of the government or if you're the, the head of the school, like it means authority and it, it connotates some sort of, of emphasis on hierarchy or structure that this person is, is in charge of everything that's going on. And that's true, and that's how Paul is using it. But again, he begins to subvert the expectations of what being in charge or what being a, a, a figurehead means in his context. And so when he gets into this understanding, he, he lays out that Christ is head of the church. Okay, and so if you understand the, the kind of image that he's saying is, is Christ is head of the church, and what does he say Christ does for the church? How does Christ act out that headship? He's not like the emperor of Rome who's the head of Rome and everyone lives and dies by what he says. Christ is the kind of, of head figure who gives his life self-sacrificially and submits to the needs of his church, to the body of Christ, his bride. 
And Paul says the same way husbands, he just assumes in their society and in their culture that men would have the authority figure. He, like Aristotle, he says that a couple times there's exceptions, but Paul says that, that he's assuming that men will just be in a position of authority because of how their society is set up. They are, are a higher level on the hierarchy. But he says they are to follow the same example of Christ, who like in, in Philippians 2, gave up his position with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but gave himself up for his church. That is what he calls husbands to, is this submission, this, this, this giving of themselves, prioritizing their wives' needs over their own. Now, now just think in the context that Paul is writing to. I, I mean, marriage at that time looked very different than it does today. A man who, who's probably 30, 35 would literally buy a young girl to be his wife. He would go to another man, buy a wife from him who is probably 13, 14, 15 years old. And that young girl's sole role in life was to make sure that the house ran accordingly, that the, that the slaves did what they were supposed to, that the children did what they were supposed to, that the laundry was done. That was her sole function. She was, she was little more than a servant. And Paul steps onto the scene and he says, that young girl does not exist to serve you. If you follow Jesus Christ, you exist to serve her. That she is not just supposed to meet your every need. You are supposed to, to love her and prioritize her needs above your own. Give of yourself self-sacrificially so that she can experience the love and gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how, I mean, that sounds kind of radical in our own day. Much like these men would have been the laughingstock, like you're doing, you're doing the laundry for your wife, which is actually what Paul does in the, in the next stage of his household code. Look at, look at what Paul does in 25 through 28. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle. What's the, the metaphor, the illustration Paul is using here to talk about how, how Jesus' relationship with the church? It's laundry. Literally in the household clothes, it would be specific enough that you can go and see how women were expected to do laundry and how that would be the glory of them if they, they kept their household clean. And Paul says that's what Christ does for us. That Christ does the laundry, washing us, cleansing us, and presenting us as holy. And then he says to husbands, in this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself loves his wife. He, he anchors it in Jesus' teaching about the greatest commandment. Love one another as you love yourself. Take the position of servant. Paul is assuming in a patriarchal society that people who follow Christ, people who have positions of power would naturally, as a result of following Christ, give those positions up for the well-being and prioritizing the well-being of others above their own needs. That's what Paul is calling the church to, and specifically in these verses, husbands and wives to. And he's not just making this up. He is anchoring it on the teachings of Jesus. Cynthia Westfall, a theologian and scholar, she says this. Um, Paul places the responsibility and obligation for sociological transformation in the Christian community upon those who have power. While he reverses the culture's negative evaluation of those without power, which is consist consistent with the teachings of Jesus. 
You see, what Paul is saying is that if we believe the gospel, if we believe that, that Christ has given himself up, the head, he's the head of our new family, he, he's the head of our new community, and he gave himself up for us. People within the community who have power, who are considered the head of their household or whatever they're a part of, will give their power and position up, prioritizing the needs and well-being of others. It's a radical, radical transformation of expectation and how people would see culture and relationships in that day. And, and he's challenging all of that. What Paul is really saying is that this self-giving love, believing the gospel and his household codes, that they're not about reinforcing the power dynamics that were at play that day, but relinquishing power that we've been given. That, that people in positions of authority or power give that up for the sake of others. It, it's completely radical, even for our own ears in some, some ways. Yeah, I think Paul is creating this idea of this really interesting dance that happens, this, uh, that Christ gives himself up. There's some submission that happens, and then there's some more submission. And yeah, yeah, you did so good. That. I, I forgot this part last night, and she would just kind of waited for me, and then now she tried to pick it up because I just got going, and I forgot what <laughs> I was supposed to say next. Um, yeah, there's this dance, and so Paul sees it play out in the church with Christ submitting to the, to the church and then the church submitting to Christ. But he says it plays out the same way with, with husbands and wives. That they're in this dance of submission where, where wives are submitting to their husbands and prioritizing the needs of their husbands. And then husbands are doing that for wives. And, and we're just out submitting one another in love and mutual submission, caring for one another's needs so we can reenact this gospel story through, through this dance that we do together, which is a really beautiful picture. Exactly. So really, Paul's saying that the purpose of marriage is to, is to reenact that story, Christ's self-sacrificial love. Um, to follow God's example in the way that we live, in the way that we love others, um, by acting and prioritizing the needs and the well-being of those around us, like we said. This is really interesting because he says that, that marriage is purposed to do this, but this isn't the only place that this happens or the only way we can do this. So I think that leaves a really interesting question for us. How are we reenacting this story? What does it look like to reenact this self-sacrifice that Christ calls us to um, with our kids or with our coworkers or with our friends, um, with our spouses, with all the relationships, with other people in our church community. Yeah. I think that's really what um, Paul is kind of calling the church to. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really challenging concept for, for the church, that, that it would be so beautiful if, if we could begin to understand this and live this out. Because we kind of come with this like modern context and, and American evangelicalism, and, and some of us are under the impression that to be a flourishing human means to, to like get married and have kids. That the highest calling we have as Jesus followers is to get married and have children and go to church on Sunday with them. And, and Paul's saying that that's not the highest level of flourishing. That the highest level of flourishing is learning and living out this dance with all relationships that you're a part of, living the way of love that Jesus demonstrated for us. That's what it means to flourish, is to become more like Jesus and love others the way that Jesus has loved us. Yeah. And we're not up here because we've gotten this figured out. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've been married for almost 11 years now. We met way back in middle school. 
Um, she did not want to date me in middle school, so it took like five or six years to get yeah. her on board. <laughs> so we started dating not until high school. Um, and, you know, I think what's interesting is going through life, it's, it's really normal that there are different seasons that bring out new things that make it hard and challenging to figure out how to relearn what it means to submit and to love like Christ calls us to. Things challenging like, uh, like ice cream preferences, right? <laughs> Um, no, but in all honesty, this, uh, like, just being vulnerable, the last two weeks of our marriage has not been great. Um, there's been a lot of tension, a lot of fighting to the point where a couple times I was like, do I need to call Larry and ask him to <laughs> preach on this? Like, like I don't know that, that I'm fit to do this, and, and it's stuff that we're working through. But you go through those seasons and those challenges, and you have to relearn um, what it looks like to, to self-givingly um, love the other person in your life. And so... Um, yeah, yeah. It, what it looks like to live out that dance. And we don't, we don't know where everyone in this room is coming from today, right? Where, where every different person in their relationships, whatever those may be, are in terms of how this is playing out and what this dance looks like for you. And so I think really what, what's important to consider is this idea that um, this biblical act of love is, and submission is really that call to act and to um, prioritize the, the needs of others. It would be super easy if we came in here and gave you a list of like, these five tips will make your marriage <laughs> God-centered, or um, these three tips will improve your relationships or something. But I think really what Paul is saying is that there's this one thing, our theology, about what Christ did for us and what that means for how we um, live for others really transforms our relationships yeah. in a powerful way. Yeah, it's not the five tips. It's really like one thing of centering our lives on Christ and the gospel and letting that flow through us and how we love um, other people. Um, and so I think um, one of the challenges for Waterstone today is if you're not married and you're listening to this, you're like, I don't know how this applies to me. I, I think it's, it's clear from what Paul is, is teaching that even if you're not married or whatever stage of life you might be in, we are all called to that ethic, to, to live like Christ, to, to walk in the way of love um, as we love others. And so I think the question um, for you today is, is, is your life um, reenacting the gospel in the relationships that you're in, whether that's coworkers or teachers or, or whoever that might be, friends, roommates. Um, and then if you're married, I, I think this, it would actually be a good practice this week. Sit down with your spouse and, and ask one another, how well are we dancing together? When was the last time that we were in step with one another in this act of, of biblical love and submission that Paul's talking about? Where are we out of step? What are the things in our life that are maybe like pulling one way or that, that you keep stepping on my toes on this one area or whatever that might be? Um, and, and what would it look like to, to have those conversations in our relationships to, to begin to, to live out what Christ has called us to and, and what Paul is teaching here about this, this self-giving love um, and, and prioritizing other people's needs. And so now as we kind of wrap up, um, we're going to go to a time of prayer like we've been doing for this whole series. Uh, and you might be in a, a season of marriage um, where you feel like you're struggling, but if you get up to go ask for prayer, um, that everyone's going to know your marriage is a wreck and that you are like on the spot suddenly. And that's not what this is. Um, I, I think really the purpose of, of prayer in this moment, um, whether you're single, whether you're married, is, is what would it look like for all of us to resubmit ourselves to Christ's teaching of self-sacrificial love? 
Like where are our hearts out of step or out of alignment with what Christ has called us to in whatever relationships we might be a part of? What, what people in our life are difficult to love that we need to receive prayer for? What, what place in our life is Christ calling us to love more sacrificially and more submissively to those in our lives? And that we would love um, to pray with you. We have counselors and prayer people all around the room. Um, and if you just want to step more into that, we'd encourage you uh, to get prayer. Um, let me pray for us. And then as uh, the band plays this next song, as we worship together, if you want prayer, feel free uh, to come forward to one of the corners or back to one of the corners and someone can pray with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much um, for this teaching uh, from the Apostle Paul. Um, God, we know that, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correction and for, for challenging us. Um, and God, we pray that, that we would all have a better understanding of what Paul means in some of these, these letters that contextually can feel hard for us. But, but mostly, Father, we pray that we would be a community of believers, a community of followers of Jesus who love you deeply, who have been so transformed by the power of your presence and your gospel, that, that, that the way that you have loved us and sacrificed yourself for us would transform our hearts and lives so that whatever relationship we are in, we would step into those spaces and walk in the way of love as Christ has loved the church. Father, we pray for people today who are, are feeling lonely and they would love to have a dance partner with, to, something to step into where they could reenact this story of the gospel together. Father, we pray for marriages that are struggling or, or people who feel challenged in this today, that, that, that feel convicted that they have maybe not been loving their wives or their husbands the way that you have called us to. God, we pray for healing for hearts in this room and people joining us um, remotely. God, we pray that your gospel um, would speak deeply to us, that the depths of which you have loved us, we would love one another. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.